0: I'm Charlie Rosader and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Janetta calhoun Mish, an award-winning poet, writer, and literary scholar. Her latest collection is What I Learned at the War from West End Press. And she is a contributing editor for Oklahoma Today and director of the Red Earth Creative Writing MFA program, at Oklahoma City University. Then I'll be talking about a new biography of Lola Ridge, a little-known radical poet, feminist, and editor who was an important figure in the early 20th century modernist movement in the United States. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Janetta calhoun Mish. She's an award-winning poet, writer, and literary scholar. Her most recent poetry collection is What I Learned at the War. She's the editor of the award-winning Mongrel Empire Press, a contributing editor to Oklahoma Today. She's talking to us from New Mexico, but she's the director of the Red Earth Creative Writing MFA program at Oklahoma City University. So I'm so glad you can join us from way out there in the West, Janetta
1: happy to be here charlie you've told me that um,
0: a place is really important to you it's a lot of what you talk about with your students and i think that's great because not a lot of us i think know a lot about oklahoma so so tell me about it
1: (laughs) yes place is very important to me i keep thinking i'm finally going to write a book that has nothing about oklahoma in it but that hasn't happened yet um i enjoy reading poems that talk about place i personally for myself i need to be grounded in some way in poetry and yes oklahoma is one of those places people have a lot of imaginary ideas about that may be somewhat based in historical past but aren't quite true now Um, i often say that oklahoma is unwritten Um, That's not to say there aren't many fantastic writers from Oklahoma who have written about Oklahoma, but I think we haven't quite reached a critical mass where there's enough writing by people who know the state that it informs um, the society's conception of where we are.
0: Uh, Yeah, I know when, when I, my one extensive visit to Oklahoma for that Labor Fest a few years ago, when we really got to spend some time, and learning about how really the liberal background, let's say, of Oklahoma, and now it's it's such a really red state. And that's, of course, interesting. Now, where I'm here in Vermont, it used to be extremely conservative, and it had a conversion back sometime, I think, in the mid-'60s, and ever since has been extremely liberal, the exact opposite. what, What happened in Oklahoma? Was there a critical point when things changed um, or some event yeah, or something that, like
1: that? Yeah, that happened in the teens and 20s, 19, teens and 20s. Um, huh. And the reason that it changed from a state that had more voters for the socialist presidential candidate per capita than any other state in the union was because um, the leftists were um, persecuted and prosecuted. And, um, oh. but then for many years, we were a democratic state. We had democratic governors. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, with like a lot of the South, it changed in the, uh, early eighties, um, uh, which was a, a concentrated effort. You know, um, the Southern, what do they call that? This, the way the Republican party went after the, the Southern vote. Yeah. And succeeded and succeeded. Wow. Do you write, uh, polit- by the way, uh, political poems or uh, very much? I would say that um, a lot of my poems are political. Hmm. I, I also subscribe to Thomas McGrath's idea about political poems. Thomas McGrath said there were two kinds of political poems. Um, there's the tactical and the strategic And McGrath meant by tactical the poems that we write about a specific event, cultural or political event or happening or process that are kind of time-bound. For instance, um, the resistance poems against Trump that a lot of people are writing now, that would be a tactical poem. Uh But he also said there was such a thing as a strategic poem in which the political and social beliefs of the writer brought to fore the political in all of their work. And one of his uh, examples of that was Pablo Neruda.
0: Wow. That's a really interesting distinction. I mean, conceptual framework.
1: Yes. So I would say I do occasionally write tactical poems. Mm-hmm. But primarily, most of my poems are strategic, and they're political often in the sense that I'm speaking through my working-class background, through my working-class family, and speaking about those kinds of issues that affect working-class people.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should hear a poem. Listeners might get impatient for poetry if we talk too long, before okay. the first one anyway. <laughs>
1: well, speaking of working-class background... Mm-hmm. I am going to read a poem called portrait as paramedical Roustabout." about 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the diff on hourly wages almost doubled my pay on 3640 weekend shifts and tripled it on holidays. I always called and said, sorry, can't be there for Christmas Eve or Easter morning. But the truth is, it was easier to empty bedpans than fight with my sister. More fulfilling to change sweat-soaked sheets on a cancer patient's bed than to sing gospel songs with my relatives, proclaiming a good news I didn't believe. I felt better sliding a needle into an old woman's blue-veined, tissue-skinned hand than I ever did waiting for anger or disappointment or sorrow to erupt from one boyfriend or another and spread like smoking lava across the room. I buzzed up on adrenaline, pushing the EKG cart down to the ER in a rush, placing electrodes as much by feel as by sight, moving inside a trance memory where all bodies became the count and curve of right side ribs. Sometimes I worked the lab, where sacred human fluids arrived sheathed in glass bodies or clinging to the tip of a swab. There, I lived in the Temple of Isis, an acolyte of healing, learning chants against dismemberment. It was easier, too, shooting invisible rays through little boys with broken arms and entering into darkness afterwards to perform alchemy, bringing ghostly images forth from the darkest material than it was to cure my own disease, the graveyard shift and weekend schedule, a safe haven from the rights of dating and sex, except for the ER guys, and we all knew our empty hospital bed assignations were nothing more and nothing less than a spell against death a spell that did not cover me when I emerged into the bright mornings of the mundane world where I could not save anyone, not even myself.
0: Oh, that's a great life experience poem.
1: <laughs> Thank how, you. How,
0: how, how long after the, the life things happened was the poem written? Was it around About the time or many years later, looking back?
1: About 20 years later. <laughs>
0: That's not uncommon, I find.
1: No, yeah. it took me a long time to develop a poetics where I could write about work and life in with good craft. You know, it took me a while oh. to figure out how to talk about these things to where they were strategic poems that um, had great craft elements, good good metaphors, good imagery, good line breaks.
0: Yeah. yeah, not just, like, keeping a journal for yourself, but turning it into a poem that uh, people who, who appreciate poetry would like.
1: Yes, than, I hope so. See
0: the, va- see the value of it, you know, see what you're doing there.
1: Yes. Yeah. How about doing another one? Okay, this one um, combines many of my personal... Mm, obsessions and poetry altogether. It's about family. It's placed in a specific place in Oklahoma. It's an elegy. I was um, really surprised when I actually got the printed copy of my book and started looking through it because I didn't realize that almost every poem in my new, most recent book, What I Learned at the War, was elegiac. Um, Mm. that I know of, I don't actually have any formal, you know, couplet, um, elegies, but there are many elegies for people who have died. It's elegiac about certain times and places in Oklahoma. It's also many of them are elegies for people that I used to be. So this one is called pastoral for my brother. Today, I remember prowling the woods with you, smashing wild grapes into our haunted mouths, smoking the vines. You ran faster, your spindly three-years-older boy legs bounding across a darkening field, my seven-year-old shadow racing ahead of me, grasping for your heels as if it belonged to you. Where woods joined pasture, a meadowlark, Alarmed by our merriment, squawked, dragged her spotted wing and decoy, her chicks betraying the grave game with laughter of their own. In the gully, among years of refuse, you found a marriage plate broken in half, separating our mother and your father as surely as the divorce. A week later, I destroyed your newly mended memento, through the shattered porcelain pieces into the lake. I do not remember why. The meadowlark still drags her wing. The shadows are even longer, reaching for you where I cannot go.
0: How, When you're writing, what mostly happens for you when you revise? What are the kind of things that you tend to change or add in?
1: I do a lot of writing in my head, in the background. I can almost feel it. It's right, you know, on the back of my head um, before I ever write things down on the page. And that was a habit I developed when I worked working-class jobs. Um, working in the hospital, you can't, like, stop your work to jot something down. So I learned to compose mostly in my head. Poems for me oftentimes start as a shape. I can feel their shape in my chest which is I don't know how else to explain it it's kind of strange some poems are um, like a river the shape you know like a river would flow Uh kind of curving and some poems are more like a triangle and some poems are more like a cube Um, so once I write uh, a poem down most of the time it's already been through three or four revisions in my head Hmm. it's interesting what you ask just now because I realized that I had copied, uh, I was using an older copy of this poem and I can tell you exactly um, a revision here. Um, oh. When I talked about my brother's shadow racing, my shadow racing ahead of me, grasping for my brother's heels as if it belonged to you. I revised that actually in the printed version to say grasping for, Grasping for your heels as if grasping to be stitched to your heels. So, you know, putting in the Peter Pan reference there, like Mm -hmm. my shadow was running for his, his feet because it, it wanted to be stitched to him. So both Mm -hmm. I worked in a Peter Pan reference and I also was trying to match that feeling of closeness and um, with my brother um, he passed away at the age of 47, uh, mostly because he was having trouble keeping jobs because he had some substance abuse problems and the veterans administration wouldn't pay for the medication he needed for his heart. So he was going oh. without, so he had a stroke oh. Oh. and, um, I hadn't thought of this incident I'm sure mm-hmm. I put this incident away in my head because I didn't want to think about why would I do that to this brother I was so close to. But you know, when we're kids, sometimes we get a little mean streak. Mm-hmm. I really don't remember why I did. I threw the memento of his parent of my mother and his father's wedding in the lake. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. And and
0: the thing that prompted me to ask the question is is nothing that you talked about. It's just that I noticed. Haunted Mouths, and mm-hmm. it just popped right out of me. It's an unusual thing to say and really interesting. And I was wondering if like, the poem was there for a while, and then you went, Oh, haunted, or maybe some of it was there from the very beginning. I don't, maybe you don't remember.
1: Actually, I think Haunted Mouths was already in there because um, there are some other poems in this book that I wrote before I wrote this one uh-huh. that refer to the. Um, abusive family situation we were in Hmm. um this particular poem takes place at my grandparents farm which was our haven our safe place Hmm. the place we could be kids um but in our home uh, our stepfather was extremely abusive and we had to be very careful about what we said all the Hmm. time you know, one wrong word out of those haunted mouths. Uh So our mouths were haunted with fear is the way I was feeling it. Um, But I don't think I would have come up with that phrase if I hadn't already written some other poems in this book that had to do with our family situation. Yeah,
0: yeah. It it brought up the context, the, the bigger, wider context of this specific incident. Yes. That's not talked about in the poem, but it it was there in your mind then as you work through. That's an interesting, I'm thinking of it as an interesting advantage series of poems around some kind of content or context, or if you even want to say place. But the fact that some earlier things that you write, they're then in your head as you write the next thing and the next thing, and... It can come in in uh, not quite conscious ways that are, of course, completely appropriate because they're coming out consistently from the one mind.
1: Yes. Well, at least when you went back to sense of place there, you know, for me and for many other people who talk about sense of place, a place isn't just the place. It's the place, the history of the place and all the feelings that you have associated with that place. So, Anytime I think about the house that we grew up in and also my grandparents' farm, there's a whole series of associative emotions that go with that.
0: Right, right. I, I once tried to do a series. I call it, uh, you write about your growing up house, yeah. whichever it might be for people, because someone's grandparents' house might be more important or the home house, but uh, and try to write a poem about each room. I didn't end up with a lot of successful, wonderful poems, but it was great for recollecting details. I remembered things, when I tried to, in my mind, look around the old living room, what was there, where was the furniture, what was it? And then try to think about, well, who cares? So whatever happened in that room or what did it mean? Uh, the other part you're talking about, the the feeling part, not just the objective, external, whatever it is. It was, it was a really interesting exercise is all I can say. I got maybe one or two poems out of the, you know, Six or eight rooms.
1: <laughs> That's actually a great idea, Charlie. Can I steal that from you?
0: Definitely. I've used it. In, I've tried. I've used it in workshops. At least people who say they can't think of what to write about. I talk about poetry as it rec- can help you recollect and whatever.
1: Yes.
0: And it's, it's just the more things that pop out when you, in your head, keep looking around a particular place. Mm-hmm. That's what that exercise taught me. And uh, no, I found it at least interesting to do, as I said. And it didn't result in a bunch of great poems, but. It was a really interesting writing activity.
1: Yes. Well, my uh, sister nice. just now sold that house four months ago. So, mm. um, and it was pretty much exactly the way it was when we were growing up. She was living there. Mm. Um, and uh, except for the back porch had been closed in to make an extra room. But um, it still had its 1970s decor, six, late 60s mm-hmm. and early 70s decor. Yeah. So great. that was that was handy for me. I actually um, have another poem about trying to walk back into that house and the emotions that it brought to me. Okay. So
0: anyway, but but um, you know, we probably have time to read and read another poem and talk a little bit, and that'll pretty much do it.
1: I think I'm going to read this uh, prose poem entitled "Proper Punctuation." All right. Um, I've written more prose poems for this book than um, than I've ever written before. It just seemed like some things had um, needed more exposition for this book. And by the way, I didn't start out to write all these family-in-place poems. I was determined that I was going to write a book that wasn't about family-in-place because uh-huh. my last book was family-in-place. But um, a poem happened that I didn't expect. I thought I was writing about something else. I thought I was writing about non-personal and non-familial history and the poem turned on me. And so when it did, then all these others came along, but this one is called proper punctuation. Mm -hmm. When I was in kindergarten, I fell in love with the period that no nonsense, carbony dot of punctuational closure. Ironic, poor girl. Later, I would moan, I hate my period, but of course I didn't mean the sentence ending kind. My love affair with Monsieur P was inextricably related to my fleeing with the sentence. I could read and write when I arrived in Mrs. Dunlap's lemon-polished classroom, but had never before enticed a pearly string of words to join together in holy meaning." Before the afternoon, I wrote Sam ran fast on my Big Chief tablet. I was innocent of my need for the period, but it soon became an obsession. It seemed to me that Sir Period had power to put a full stop to overwhelming demands, to end entire families of caustic words, to insist no more and be taken seriously. I lingered with period, blunting my pencils and poking holes in paper while we retracing each one to its deepest possible blackness. Every period gleamed with excess graphite, the fingers on my writing hand stained, the side of my palm slick from slogging through lead slag heaps on the way to the next sentence, the next opportunity to create another singularity of imagined infinite density, not a black hole, but a wormhole into another world where King period reigned supreme. A world where chaos was contained between periods, exclamation points were always gleeful, and question marks were nothing to fear. When I was older, I transferred my affections to the semicolon. I could not abandon the period entirely, but desired a more flexible, functional punctuator, one that could divide and conjoin, end and begin simultaneously.
0: That's a neat concept <laughs> in the beginning simultaneously. That's um, the kind of thing poets we'll think of.
1: Right. Well, you know, um, yeah. what you can see where this is placed in the book is that this is as much about the chaotic family I grew up in as it is mm-hmm. about the period. Um, school was a haven for me. I loved going to school. I always stayed after to help the teachers do things like clean the blackboards because I didn't want to go home and um, and I really did like make my periods really black <laughs> but um, the parts where it talks about um, chaos was contained family exclamation uh-huh. points were always gleeful they were never angry question marks were nothing to fear uh, refers back to the idea that in our family there were often what I call unanswerable questions Questions that no matter which way you answered them, you would be in trouble. Questions like, why do you think I'm mm-hmm. stupid? And you weren't allowed to not answer either. So um, they were traps. They were questions that were traps. And as I got older and, and recovered myself from my childhood, I needed to learn to divide and conjoin and end and begin simultaneously. So in, in the context of the book, this is much more clear.
0: Wow, well, and it's very interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and some, someone reading your book has got to read it more than more than once to really catch on to a lot mm-hmm. of things that are going on, because because you manage to be very uh, layered. Oh, thank really. you.
1: I appreciate that. Sometimes yeah, uh, people like me who mostly write uh, mostly narrative poems, although there in this book there are some poems in form, there are some poems that are closer to pure lyric. Um, but a lot of times people who write narrative poems uh, are not read very well People tend to assume that all there is is the story and don't see yeah. what's happening underneath that So I'm glad you said that yeah. about my work
0: Yeah, yeah as if, if, if you can just understand it, well It's all on the surface and you're done. Yeah, and not as if that's the surface But guess what these things mean more than one thing.
1: Yes. Thank because you. Because
0: it's, it's poetry.
1: It is poetry.
0: Okay. Well, this has been great, Janet. I'm really glad we could do this.
1: I'm really glad we could do this too, Charlie. Should we tell your uh, Should we tell your listeners how long we've known each other? You knew me when I was just a baby poet. Some I don't know, 27 years ago.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. In Albany, New York.
1: In Albany, it's New part York. Of
0: very, very active poetry scene in Albany, New York.
1: That's right. And thanks to Albany, I got the courage to learn to read aloud to other people.
0: Uh, well, that's so cool. I love hearing those kind of stories. You know, it's true. that a, a group of poets, community poets, you know, in, encouraging and, and bringing in others into the poetry fold. Yeah,
1: that's right. So thank you, and all right. and all the other three guys from Albany and all the rest of the Albany poetry scene.
0: With Janetta Calhoun Mish, and now I'd like to talk a little bit about a wonderful new book, Anything That Burns You, a portrait of Lola Ridge, radical poet. It's a marvelous source of information about the poet and her times by Therese Svoboda. Lola Ridge is probably one of the most important poets from the early 20th century, about whom most of us know very little, if anything. She was born in Ireland. In 1873 and eventually made her way to New York City in 1908 after coming of age in Australia and New Zealand. She entered the US claiming to be single and a US citizen. Both claims were untrue. She was married twice, never divorced, and at the time was a citizen of Australia. At that time, anarchy was what one historian called the favorite doctrine of the literary artistic avant-garde in America, as well as in Europe. This was a perfect fit for Ridge's temperament and her politics. While she was getting situated in New York City and meeting the central figures of the modernist movement, she wrote poems that would later be published as The Ghetto and Other Poems. In the title poem, The Ghetto, she chronicled life on the Lower East Side As an activist, she attended dangerous protests over the execution of Sacco and Vincenti, where she was in a crowd that was charged by police mounted on horseback. Given her political views, one critic notes that she has been twice neglected as a woman and as a radical. She's an important part of the radical political tradition in the US twentieth century poetry that has not really been adequately chronicled, though. Folks are working on it. In the 19-teens and 20s, there were many prominent women and writers, and modernism was going strong. In 1912, Harriet Monroe launched Poetry Magazine. Right around that time, others also began publishing an equally important modernist literary publication, for which Ridge served as one of the editors. Which was right in the thick of it there in New York City. She hosted weekly soirées for others in her one-room apartment on East 15th Street. These events were attended by basically a who's who of modernists, such as Hart Crane, Mina Loy, William Carlos Williams, Jean Toomer, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Man Ray. The guest list actually reminds me to mention that this biography is really an excellent source of information about the entire time period and to what was going on in early 20th century U.S. modernism and feminism. A statement that pretty much exemplifies the thinking that was in the air from Charlotte Perkins Gilman, the author of Her Land. Neither the masculine nor the feminine has any place in art, she said. Art is human. In 1918... The Ghetto and Other Poems, Ridge's first book, was an immediate sensation. She painted a portrait of the incredibly oppressive conditions of the Lower East Side, and yet acknowledged hope felt by the inhabitants. She knew personally of which she spoke. When she first arrived in New York, she lived in a five-by-seven room in an East Side tenement. In her poems, she described the city from the perspective of a woman and an immigrant, a perspective unique in poetry at the time. Here's an example. Cool, inaccessible air is floating in velvety blackness, shot with steel blue lights, but no breath stirs the heat, leaning its ponderous bulk upon the ghetto, and most on Hester Street, the heat, nosing in the body's overflow like a beast Pressing its great steaming belly close, covering all avenues of air, the heat in Hester Street, heaping like a day with the garbage of the world. Her subsequent books, Sun Up in 1920, Red Flag in 1927, and Firehead in 1929, were all critically acclaimed. In her later life, she was plagued by ill health, but somehow managed to survive till 1941 traveling the world, basically living hand-to-mouth on the charity of friends and the gifts from patrons. Though she's not nearly well known as she deserves to be, that seems about to change. In 1993, her little paragraph of a bio in the back of the classic anthology No More Masks noted that none of Ridge's books was easily available. Today, it's a different story. In fact, The Ghetto and Other Poems, and Sun Up, are right now available as free Kindle editions. And her collected early poems, 1905 to 1927, is due to be published by Little Island Press in June of 2017. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this has been Poetry Spoken Here. Join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com poetryspokenhere here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com poetryspokenhere here.